Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this new year. As we look forward to 2017, and as we open up your word this morning, would you speak to our hearts and minds about your kingdom, about your son, our king, about living kingdom first lives, that we might honor you above all things, that our lives may be fully, totally, completely dedicated to you. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I hope you all had a great holiday, great Christmas. Um, On my way home this past week, as I'm driving into our neighborhood, there was a tree, Christmas tree, that was out on the curb, ready to be taken off, and um, it reminded me that for most of my life, every Christmas, we got a real tree. Up until about probably five years ago or so, we got a real tree. Um, from when I was as young as I can remember, up through when I got married, um, we had our first kid, we were always getting that real tree. And a real tree, for me, was kind of part of the process of getting ready for Christmas. Um, I like the smell of the tree in the house, like when you leave and then you come back home and there's this smell that you don't have any other time of the year. And all that time we spent decorating it, putting the lights on, putting the ornaments on, trying to make everything just perfect and beautiful and wonderful. Um, But it was for a very limited period of time. That tree was not going to last And we didn't treat it like it was going to last. Um, In fact, once Christmas was over, while part of us longed for it to stay there because we didn't want Christmas to end, part of us were like, we got to get rid of this tree. Like, I'm tired of all the things dropping on the ground all the time and the cat running up the tree and knocking ornaments off. And like, I'm ready to get this tree out of my house and get back to normal. It was a, a season. It was a period, very intentionally. And yet, for that season, we really did throw ourselves into it. As I thought about that, I think that is our culture today. We're very seasonal. Um, We're very short-sighted. And here's what I mean. Today, the average person, especially my generation, um, we don't see ourselves working the same job our entire career. Like, we expect that we're going to move from place to place, and we're going to keep going up the ladder, whatever it is. We don't expect to live in the same house all our lives. Like, we expect, like, we're going to be here for a while, and then we're going to move on to somewhere else and move on to somewhere else. Um, I would say that it goes even deeper in our culture that even in things as sacred as marriage, people don't necessarily go in going, no matter what, I'm going to stay in this. That there's still an option of moving on. And yet, I look at my parents. I lived in the same house my entire life until I moved away. Both my parents worked the same job their entire career at the same company and then retired from it. But that's not normal now. We don't have, in so many ways, that long-term view. Instead, we have seasons. And we'll throw ourselves into those seasons. We'll build them up and we'll do 
but it's still a season. I want to say two things this morning. Two things out of our text. Number one, that the kingdom of God is not a season. That it is a long-term investment. And my encouragement through this message is that it is for us not something we're doing for a period of time, but something that we can, every person in this room, do from right now until your last breath. And number two, if that is true, it really should impact how we live right now. That if we're not thinking of this as seasonal, right? How many people do you know that move from church to church to church? Do you know what that means for your mindset when you come into the new church? If you know that once you are offended, once you don't like something that is said, once a ministry goes away you don't like it, that you can just move on, what's that mean for your mindset coming in? What does that mean for your decisions in that moment? How would it be different if you thought to yourself, and again, I know lots of people that like they're in a particular church, they've been there for 30, 40 years, and they just aren't leaving no matter what. What does that do for your mindset when things get hard? What does that do for your mindset when you're thinking about giving? Whether it's your money, your time, or whatever it would be. I want to suggest that if the kingdom is right now until then and we can faithfully remain in it no matter what happens, that it should impact right now. Two points. We can be faithful from right now until your last breath, no matter what happens in your life. And if that is true, it can and should impact your life right now. Open up your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. We are going through a series on the kingdom of God. We started in August, and we we went through the Old Testament all the way up to Advent. Now that we're through Advent, we're moving into the New Testament, and we'll take that all the way through Easter. The kingdom of God, trying to lay a foundation. And in particular, we've been in chapter 2 of Luke since Christmas Eve. We did the first few verses of Christmas Eve. Andy then took over, and now we're going to keep going, and we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start here on verse 21. And Luke paints a picture of a faithful family, Mary and Joseph. He paints a picture of faithfulness. And I want to show that picture, but I want to take it further and show you the ways in which Mary in particular remained faithful. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised. All right, stop right there. That is a moment of faithfulness. They went to Bethlehem, which is about six miles away from Jerusalem, from the temple. And they went there for the census. But then on day eight, they brought him to the temple that he could be circumcised. And the reason they did that is because in Genesis 17, okay, this isn't even law. This is from Abraham. 
Abraham was told that every male child on day eight should be circumcised. And they are doing what they are supposed to do. So they bring Jesus to the temple. He was called Jesus, and you get the faithfulness in this particular verse. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. They are doing exactly what they were told to do. They give him the name the angel said to give. And that's significant, much like John the Baptist. Hey, John's name was weird. When, when first they try and give him that name, when his mother tries to give him that name, all of the people around him go, whoa, you can't do that. And they look to the father. That's not a family name. Why would you give him the name John? And the, guy, the dad goes, yes, give him that name. And it's because the angel gave that name. Well, I don't think Jesus is a family name, but he gets the name because the angel said this is what his name will be, faithfulness. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. Now, if you go into Leviticus chapter 12, you will see the ritual for the purification of a woman who gives birth. That's what this is. After day eight, she had to wait 33 more days, and then she had to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice for her purification. Normally, a lamb, you'll see as we get to the bottom of this, they don't offer a lamb because if you are poorer, which they were, you could offer something different in place of the lamb. So this right here is further evidence of their faithfulness. Here is Mary going to the temple to offer this purification sacrifice. Now, it's interesting, when the time came for there, that has to be a reference to Mary and Joseph, even though Joseph, in that particular rite, he doesn't have anything to be purified from. He didn't give birth. In fact, it's very likely he wasn't even in the place when the birth was given. Men usually weren't. They'd be ushered out. And so there's something about Joseph also wanting to be purified, but we're not exactly sure from what yet. According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. All right, we have another area of their faithfulness. It's not just Mary's purification. They're also bringing Jesus to the temple, and there's only two reasons they would do that. Number one, there is a call to redeem the firstborn male. In which case, you'd give five shekels to the temple... And that would redeem the firstborn male. And instead of going into the priesthood or going into the Levitical order, the firstborn male could stay at home with his family. However, they don't need to bring Jesus to the temple for that. And there's no indication they gave any shekels. They are doing something different. In Exodus 13, the firstborn is presented to the Lord. Samuel is an example of this. Samuel's mother brings him to the temple to present him to the Lord. That seems to be what they are doing. The firstborn belongs to the Lord. And so they are giving Jesus to the Lord, which may also explain why Joseph also wants to be purified, that he can be part of that presentation to the Lord. Everything this family is doing, Luke is showing us, obeys the scriptures. Everything they're doing is what they are supposed to do in the Lord. They are a faithful, obedient family. 
Finish off verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, and here it is, instead of a lamb, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's the offering they can make instead for a poorer family. This is a faithful family. And I think that's the picture we're supposed to see. Luke shows us these things to show us that they did the things they were supposed to do. But here's the thing I want to get at from that picture for the rest of our time together. There are numerous reasons why they might not have been, especially Mary. What she goes through, there were reasons why Mary could have turned away. Why Mary may not have kept the faith. There were struggles, day-to-day kinds of struggles, not just from the beginning, but 30 years down the road, as we're going to see, where Mary could have said, I've had enough. Like, this is too far. I'm done with this. I'm going a different direction. What are you struggling with right now? Don't shout it out or anything. Just, what what are you struggling with? What is hard right now in your life? And and I would suggest that some of the most difficult things we have to do are not the really big things. In fact, quite often, when the hardest things in our life come about, somebody's diagnosed with cancer. Somebody loses a job and goes a long time without one that often we're more faithful in those times because we know how much we need the Lord. I would argue that it's the day-to-day struggles. It's the time after time after time where something doesn't go the way we think it should, that those are actually harder. And that's what we're talking about, this long-term, the long-haul faith. And Mary has those. And this is the picture I have of Mary. She had something miraculous happen in her life. How many of you have had, and again, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have had something miraculous happen in your life? God has done something big. And yet, this is Mary's story. That really big thing is in her rearview mirror. You see, Mary has the really big thing happen, But then the road of life keeps going. Mary's driving down the road of life, and in her rearview mirror, she sees that big old miraculous thing. And yet, as she looks out the front, which, by the way, is a whole lot bigger than the rearview mirror, as she looks out the front, she sees all of the crazy drivers that keep trying to run her over, all the potholes on the road that she has to avoid and half the time she runs into, and she keeps looking into the rearview mirror going, I know God worked. I saw it, but it's getting more and more distant. And she's having to struggle with the road of life. What were Mary's struggles? I think the predominant struggle she had was shame. May not be yours, but I think that was hers. The predominant struggle she had was shame. And it starts from the very birth, or even the announcement, I should say, of her son. You are going to have a child not from your husband. That is shameful. 
that should have caused Joseph, as you see in Matthew chapter 1, to divorce her, to put her away. And then she would have been known as the woman who had a child by somebody else unfaithfully and potentially could have lived out her life as a prostitute or the poor. But her husband also takes the shame on him and says, I'm going to stick with you because God has directed me to. And that really would have hurt him. He likely was a disgraced carpenter, a man whose business may have been impacted by the fact that he would not put his wife away, even though he should have in his culture. So that's how this marriage starts, shame, and probably just went throughout their marriage. And there were moments throughout all those years where Mary very likely heard the whispers of why this didn't happen or why that didn't happen. The reason your husband's business isn't so good is, well, you guys didn't do what the Lord wanted you to do. With the irony being the whole time, what were they doing? Exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. And then you see these little glimpses in Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, there is a passage where Jesus calls his disciples. He goes and gets his 12. And the next section is Mary and the brothers of Jesus coming to look for Jesus. And you know why? Because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. They want to lock him up. Now, I want to give you a perspective here. Joseph, at this point, is very likely dead. Do you know what that means for Jesus? He's the eldest son. What is he supposed to be doing? Taking care of his family, taking care of his mother. Instead, what is he doing? He's out traveling through Galilee, teaching these strange, heretical, weird things that are causing the religious leaders to reject him. And bringing what on the family? Shame. Can you uh, try to adjust that little thing, whatever that is? Um, bringing more shame on the family. You know why the family's out there going, we got to get to him and lock him up and stop him from doing this? Because for the past 30 years, I've had to deal with shame. And now my eldest son, who's supposed to be taking care of us, what's he doing? He's teaching all these weird things and getting us on the bad list of the religious leaders. we got to stop him. And then a couple chapters later, Jesus is at his hometown. And they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Now, there's something there. Okay, Joseph most likely is dead by this point. It's possible that he's alive, but most likely he is dead. And because they're still associating Jesus with the carpenter's son, you wonder, how long ago was that death? Mary's also lost her husband. And can you just hear the reasons why he might have died coming from people who think that she's been disobeying the Lord and her family's been disobeying the Lord the entire time? Could you imagine hearing it? Your husband might have lived if he would have done what the Lord wanted. Shame after shame after shame. And then to top it off, she's at the cross. Do you remember who's at the cross with her? Almost nobody. Her son is dying alone. And what, about, what is it about crucifixion 
the number one thing. It's not pain. That's what we emphasize quite often, how much he suffered, how, much, how painful it was. That was not the primary purpose of crucifixion. It was shame. The reason they didn't want them to die right away is so that they could hang naked, vulnerable, helpless in front of everybody. And they could keep passing them by to see their shame. And here is the epitome of poor Mary's life. Now my son, my eldest son, after I've already lost my husband, my eldest son who way, 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 way in the rearview mirror, I thought was supposed to be something amazing. And now I question that whole experience. And you may think that's crazy, but let me ask you, has God ever done a miracle in your life that a few years later you wondered if it really happened that way? The further away you get, the more you wonder, did God actually do what I think he did? Here's Mary, 30 years later, her oldest son is on a cross. Nobody other than John and a few women are around. All these people that said they believed in him, even they have left. And he's dying the most shameful death possible on a Roman cross. And Mary knows the epitome of shame. And yet, she's there. She's still with him. And here is the beautiful, wonderful part of Mary's story. Acts chapter one. Jesus has died. He has been raised. And in Acts chapter one, in verse 12, and they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all those people that weren't at the cross because they ran. But they're back. They're waiting on Jesus. They're waiting on the Spirit. And verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This woman, who spent 30 years of shame, who watched her eldest son go crazy and get rejected and begin to think what he's doing to the family, and, and then to watch him die, and to die basically alone, this death for traitors, None of it broke her. Here she is, faithfully, praying, waiting, believing, trusting. This is the long-haul faith that every person in this room is capable of in Christ. And here's the thing. I have no steps for you. I have no, here's the three ways that you can live this long haul faith. Um, here, here's your, you know, 12 steps. Here's your whatever it is. I, I don't have that. You know why I don't have it? Because we don't have it in Scripture. Not for Mary. As you go through Mary's life, 
Now, I could go in, because I'm pretty good at this, and I could speculate a whole lot. I could come up with some things out of Mary's life, and you'd all think they sounded pretty good. I know, because I've done this for a long time. I could look at a little verse, and I could read something and go, now, from this, we learn that we should do this. But that's not what's in the text. What's in the text is the story of a faithful woman to show us the possibility of a long-haul faith, to inspire us to believe that no matter what, even being at the foot of the cross while my son dies, I can still hold on to Christ. Anne Frank was born in June of 1929. First 10 years of her life were pretty good. Her parents moved her to the Netherlands as the Nazis began rising up. And in the Netherlands, again, they had a pretty good life. Otto, her father's business, was successful. Anne and her sister Margot went to school, and things were pretty good until 1939 when the Nazis went into the Netherlands. And within five days, the Netherlands had surrendered, and they were occupied. And during the occupation began all of the anti-Semitism. All of the rules came about of what they could and could not do. And in 1940, her father, along with a business partner, built a safety place behind one of his businesses where the family could hide if needed. And in 1942, a letter was sent that her sister was to report to a German work camp. The next day, her dad took the family and went to the safe place. A week later, his business partner who helped him also joined them. And for two years, eight people lived in this little tiny one room. They got help from some other people in the business to bring them some food and clothing. But also, right before going in, Anne was given a diary. And she began to write. And I want to read you a little of what she wrote. After May 1940, the trouble started for the Jews. Our freedom was severely restricted by a series of anti-Jewish decrees. Jews were required to wear a yellow star. Jews were required to turn in their bicycles. Jews were forbidden to ride trains or in cars, even their own. Jews were forbidden to go to theaters, cinemas, or any forms of entertainment. Jews were forbidden to use swimming pools, tennis courts, hockey fields, or any other athletic fields. You couldn't do this and you couldn't do that, but life went on. That was 1940, before they got into hiding, but as all the rules started coming in. Then in 1943, when they were in hiding, she writes this, I long to ride a bike, dance, whistle, look at the world, feel young and know that I'm free, and yet I can't let it show. 
Just imagine what would happen if all eight of us were to feel sorry for ourselves or walk around with discontent clearly visible on our faces. Where would that get us? And I just want you to remember, she was born in 1929. This is 1943. She's 14, and she's writing this. Finally, in 1944, in August, they are captured. The entire family is sent to German work camps. None of them will survive except for Otto, the father. And one of the last things that Anne Frank writes, um, August is when they're captured. July is when she writes this. It's difficult in times like these. Ideals, dreams, and cherished hopes rise within us only to be crushed by grim reality. It's a wonder I haven't abandoned all my ideals. They seem so absurd and impractical. Yet I cling to them because I believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. She's 15, writing this. Why do I share her story? She was about Mary's age when Mary made the decision. And I want to show you the power of somebody who holds to something, even when they don't give you the steps to do it. Because what you don't find in the diary is how. She never writes, hey, step number one in being faithful, even through all of these hard things, is this. Step number two is this. Step number three is this. Just do these steps as if there's some formula. And instead, she simply writes her experience, and you see a person who doesn't lose heart in circumstances that most of us probably can't even imagine living through. But here was the impact. On Robin Island, some of us read Anne Frank's diary. We derived much encouragement from it. It kept our spirits high and reinforced our confidence in the invincibility of the cause of freedom and justice. Nelson Mandela, 20 years in prison, but Anne Frank's diary, just reading it, inspired him. I am almost 90, and my strength is slowly failing. Still, the task I received from Anne continues to restore my energy, to struggle for reconciliation and human rights throughout the world. That was her father, almost 90 years old. 40 years afterwards, he's still going because of his daughter and what she wrote in her life. And this is what he says to others. Um, Otto corresponds with some readers at length about this, and he says to them, quote, young people especially always want to know how these terrible things could have ever happened. I answer them as well as I can, and at the end I often finish by saying, I hope Anne's book will have an effect on the rest of your life so that in so far as it is possible in your own circumstances, you too will work for unity and peace. I don't have any steps for a long-haul faith coming from the life of Mary. I have a life. I have a woman who went through some very dramatic, traumatic, difficult things, and yet at the end we find her 
praying and trusting and waiting on the Lord to say to you, no matter what you are going through, it is possible to hold on to Christ. You can be inspired and have a long-haul faith that goes from right now until your final breath. Which leads me to just one application from it. If that can be us, how can that kind of faith impact the way we're living right now? Instead of making decisions where we are only thinking a year ahead or two years ahead or even a month ahead, how is it that our faith, the way that we raise our kids, the way that we do our jobs, the way that we interact with neighbors, that we can start going, this is not just for right now, but this is for the rest of my life. Let me give you an example of what that decision might look like. Just one that has not much to do with faith, but it has to do with long haul. We recently decided that we were gonna get my daughter a full-size violin. Uh, she's been playing since she was four, and she's gone through the smaller size and then the next size and the next size. Now she needs a full-time violin, full-size violin, because if you've seen my daughter, she may be 10, but she looks like a little adult. Um, she's almost as tall as my wife is now, and she's just, she's huge. She's the biggest kid in her school. So we got her a full-size violin. Well, it was an old violin um, made in, when? 19-something. 1900, okay. I mean, this is an old violin, and it needed some work done on it. And so my wife says to me, this is probably going to need a couple hundred dollars worth of work. I mean, is it okay if we get that done? I'm like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is good. It's going to be a better violin than what we could get for a couple hundred bucks. And so she takes it to the shop, and then she lets me know how much it's going to cost to actually fix it. I was expecting three digits, not four digits. Now, the, fourth, the first of the four was a one at least, but it was still four digits. And after my heart started beating again, I just said, is it worth it? And according to the guy who's going to fix the violin, with this fix, this violin will take her at a minimum to college and probably through college. And I said, then, then do it. Because here's the thing. My daughter is committed to play violin whether she wants to or not. <laughs> she has no choice. Which means she needs a violin. And so that decision was not a decision I would have made if my daughter was going to quit in seventh grade or if we were only making it for the next six months. That was a decision to bring her all the way through college that we could do right now. And in that case, it was worth it. I'd have made a very different decision if it wasn't for that. I want you to ask yourself, if I'm in this for the long haul, how should I treat my children when it comes to the faith? How should I do my job? 
how should I view my neighbors? I'm not talking about for the next month or two months. I'm in this for the long haul. How does that impact what I do? There was a, a, a friend of mine who came to church, and, and right now they are kind of, a, they're kind of moving around between churches at this point. They're doing a lot of traveling. Um, and this friend that came to church, they store up their tithe until they get to a particular church. And by the time they got to us, they'd stored up four weeks. And you don't know who this person is or anything, so I'm going to tell you what it is because the, the amount is actually important. And they, so they gave their monthly tithe to us. Their monthly tithe was $800. And that's what they gave to us. After making that tithe, they then took a trip leading here and they went over to Best Buy, which you know is right around the corner. And they walked in and there was a beautiful 4D TV on sale for $800. And there was a little bit of a, and he even told the story, there was a little bit of a, hmm, maybe they haven't cashed that check yet. <laughs> Should it go here? Or, I mean, that would look awfully nice on my wall. I got a much older TV here, and that one would look great. Now, thankfully, they didn't make that decision. They let us cash the check. But the reason they let us cash the check is because they have a long-term view of eternity, of life, of living out the Christian life. And they know that 800 going into the church was more significant than the TV going on their wall. And that's not to say they can't save up money and buy a TV. Um, I've got a nice TV on my wall. But it is to say, think about how you're spending your money. Think about how you're spending your time. Think about the decisions you're making and ask yourself, if I'm making this decision long-term, would it change? Would I see it differently? We are, the kingdom is here and it will come to fruition. And you and I can be faithful all the way to the end. I end with this. There is one thing you learn about Mary. One thing you can pull out of the text. Um, it's not steps or anything like that, but there's something that Luke gives us insight into. When the shepherds come, at the end of it, there's this little phrase that Luke adds in there. And Mary pondered these things up in her heart. Later on, when Jesus, as 12-year-olds in the temple, which we'll talk about soon, at the end of the scene... Again, Luke says, and Mary stored these things up and pondered them in her heart. Here's the one thing I think we can say about Mary, and I think, I don't, I think this is truthful to the scriptural portrayal. Mary was a thinker. I, I think Mary, when things were happening, she really did dwell on them. And I can't help but think that throughout her life that was true of her. Not just at those two moments, but as things were happening, she really did think on them. She dwelled on them. And this is an experience. Now I'm going to conjecture based off that. This is an experience I think Mary had. I think after the resurrection and the ascension, I think Mary looked in her rearview mirror and everything that she had interpreted up to that point changed. I think she saw her son losing it 
her son out there just, I mean, crazy, literally. They wanted to lock him up because Jesus seemed to believe the things he was saying. In fact, he believed them so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own reputation. He was willing to be rejected by the leaders. He would actually stand in front of the Romans and say, you have no authority over me. How ridiculous is that? Only a crazy person would ever say that. Of course they have authority over you. They rule everything. And you know what? They're going to kill you in a minute. And all of a sudden, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And Mary went, holy He was right. He actually is the king. He actually is the Messiah. I can believe not just because I'm willing myself to believe, not just because, well, if I believe it hard enough, maybe it'll be true, but I can believe because it's real. Because my son rose from the dead and conquered sin, death, and the devil. Because my son is sitting at the right hand of God Almighty, and he's going to return. My brothers and sisters, we can believe not just because we're inspired by Mary's story, but because it's real. There is nothing you can give for the sake of the kingdom of God that is not worth giving. There is no sacrifice you can make to the kingdom of God that you will not in eternity believe that was so worth giving. I promise you on the word of God that you will not come to the end and go, oh man, I should not have given that up. Oh man, I should never have sacrificed that. We will come to the end and we will go, it is more real than I ever believed. I only wish I could have believed as much now as I do. I could have believed then as I do now. We are inspired by Mary, but we also know that it's true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, our King, our Savior, our friend, who showed the world you, who showed the world the truth, whether they embrace it or not. Lord, make us kingdom people who live with a kingdom mindset that we are going into eternity, that we have eternal life right now, and that we can hold on until the end. Lord, that we might make our decisions for you now. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ and for the kingdom. Amen.